Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, investing in local communities, economies, and a sustainable future. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Member SIPC. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Can I bring in Richard Haas? Please bring in Ambassador. Richard Haas joins us now, President of the Council on Foreign Relations, author of A World in Disarray, American Foreign Policy, and the Crisis of the Old Order. He's in our Bloomberg 1130 studios with Tom. Uh, in New York. Sorry about that, Richard. Let me let me start by asking you about what's happening in New York today. The Secretary of State, Rex Tillerson, headed up to the U.N. Uh, he'll be talking about North Korea. What do you expect to hear from him? What would you like to hear from him on the issue of North Korea today at the U.N.? Well, what the United States is, is doing and the yeah. president's you know, doing it regularly in his tweets is just essentially saying this is uh, an intolerable, unacceptable situation. It, they're signaling Beijing that they have got to put much more pressure on North Korea. And I think this is the prelude to an, uh, to, to an effort to open up a negotiation between the United States and North Korea to see not if we can resolve the, the problem, but at least put a ceiling on it in a way both sides can live with. When you look at what, what the president has said thus far, are, is he indicating that he's moving toward likely preemptive strikes? Does he want to have more conversations? Does he want to rely more on, on sanctions? When you look at what that policy might be, uh, what do you see as the contours of it? Well, what you're seeing is the putting the military option, quote-unquote, on the table, as the cliché goes, and they keep talking about it. But I, no one's anxious to go to war. The, the reality of what a second Korea war be is it should make anyone pause and then pause again. But they've got to put that out there because it is a real option because the whole idea of allowing this to continue to drift is a truly unattractive future. And this, though, is a necessary yeah. prelude to set the table again for a negotiation, and that requires Chinese pressure. On, on North Korea. Let me ask the right-wing question. Mm. Can we negotiate with a nation, I guess it's a nation, that barely is ruled by law? I mean, do they, they even observe, does North Korea even observe international law? To a limited extent. And the, yeah. the answer is, well, you know, again, the alternatives are lousy. That's where the Chinese yeah. come in to put to use their leverage. And we'll try. And uh, We've had negotiations with North Korea yeah. before, both bilateral and, and multilateral. We've had, shall we say, limited success, which is another way of saying also limited failure. And, you know, we'll go at it one more time. David Gurra in Washington. I'm Tom Keenan in New York. Uh, David, we have Douglas Holtz-Eakin uh, coming up later on uh, tax reform. Maybe that's a, a good way to secure you with Ambassador Haas into the domestic front. Yeah. Uh, when you look at all of the let's, – let's use the 100-day metric. And we've had a president here who's been uneasy about people holding that up. He was keen to talk about all that he hoped to accomplish in the first 100 days earlier on in them. And now he's, he's downplaying the importance of it. When you look at the ambitiousness of his foreign policy and domestic policy, how do you, how do you rate sort of what, what he's been able to do and, and uh, what's he learned about governing here in these first 100 days? Well, on the foreign policy side, he's probably had two pluses, the limited use of force in Syria and the marshalling of pressure on, on North Korea. I think the real downside on foreign policy is he's injected so much uh, uncertainty into American foreign policy that he's really worked against the fabric of almost all of our alliance relations. I think at home, he's learned the difference between campaigning or business life on one hand and political governing on the other. 
whether it's health care or now these other issues, he's having real problems uh, building a viable coalition with Congress. And more broadly, I think he's seen the strength of independent institutions in American democracy. So he has his, his orders on homeland security and immigration and refugees, and time and time again has been rebuffed by the courts. So you know, this is almost a course in Professor Dick Neustadt, my former mm. colleague at Harvard, about that we have separate institutions, each wielding independent power. I think Mr. Trump is basically getting civics 101. You know, after, after the U.S. launched those tomahawk strikes uh, on Syria, I think a lot of people were wondering what, what would happen next. Have we gotten any more clarity on what has changed when it comes to U.S.-Syria policy? And can you draw a line between what happened in Syria and indeed what our outlook is, what our policy is uh, toward North Korea? Are they, are they connected? Well, on the first part, not a whole lot has changed with American-Syria policy. We're not going to make the removal of Bashar al-Assad and his regime a priority. We, we, we can't. Instead, you're going to have a focus on hammering ISIS, re- trying to eliminate their control of territory. And the real challenge there will be coming up with a policy for who would run it if and when they don't. I think the use of force in Syria was in part meant to signal China. If you remember, the use of force happened while Xi Jinping was dining in Mar-a-Lago with that delicious chocolate cake. And <laughs> I think it's most a, delicious. <laughs> it, was a, it was a message to him and, and North Korea that this is an administration that's more comfortable with the use of military force than was Mr. Obama's. Help me with with a president's doctrine. How long did it take before we got the so-called Obama Oh, listen doctrine? to you wax historical <laughs> on a Friday. Well, I'm not so sure we ever had an Obama You don't doctrine. think so? No, I think what we had was a bias towards restraint and retrenchment. Doctrines have to be real explanations of what you're going to do in the world. They have mm-hmm. to explain big things. They've got to be enduring. I'm not sure uh, Mr. Obama had, one, again, much more than an They don't coalesce in real time. No, it's not, usually doctrines are conferred by history in retrospect. Anytime you, you declare a doctrine, you, you end up looking a little bit silly. Doctrines are the judgment of history, that what you've done really yeah. matters and really lasts. I have failed David Gurr this morning in that I did not speak to Richard Haas about the Canadian events of the week. We featured the Canadian dollar at the beginning of the show, 136.48. Christian Friedland, their foreign affairs uh, minister, was quite sharp with our Matt Miller about how they've never lost on the lumber issue. What is the CFR backgrounder on this relation that we just take for granted? Well, again, uh, on, this, on the lumber issue, there's nothing new. When I worked in the European Bureau of the State Department uh, in the early uh, this 80s. This was Teddy Roosevelt, right? <laughs> yeah, it feels like it. There was lumber then. <laughs> One of those Roosevelts. Uh, we had the same issue then. Every day we'd start the European Bureau staff meeting with the latest on softwood lumber. Very little has changed. It became actually something of a standing joke. Well, here we are again. Yeah. So, you know, 30, 40 years later, same issue. Uh, I think more broadly, though, it wasn't a bad day for Canada yesterday. The fact that the president got pushed by so many of his senior advisors to essentially say, enough with breaking up NAFTA. Mm-hmm. You know, whatever your tactical positioning, this relationship yeah. is simply too important with Canada and Mexico. So I actually think things yesterday got back in, to reality. In your study of history and all the work of the Council on Foreign Relations, can you teach a dealmaker to negotiate within the Haas world? Uh, so far, at least, it's not clear. The president still has <laughs> or this it's idea. Failed would be. It's real. And, yeah. and New York Times actually has a story about it today. His, his whole approach is what worked in real estate. You have yeah, exactly. these narrow, one-off approaches. You come out out of the box tremendously uh, ambitious or aggressively. 
And what happens then is you've almost always got to back down. We had to do it with the Chinese over Taiwan. We're doing it with the Mexicans over the wall. So you get a reputation for backing down. But in the meantime, you not only lose mm -hmm. credibility with others, you undermine your friends. The thing with Canada. Right. To be so aggressive with your friends sends the message, we don't really value this relationship. Yeah. I really think Mr. Trump has got to figure out the difference between what, what purportedly worked for him in real estate and being president, it's a totally different tool set. You sound like a marriage counselor. <laughs> uh, my wife would tell you uh, probably uh, not. Richard Haas, thank you we'll so leave it much. There. He's the president of the Council on Foreign Relations and, of course, uh, a former ambassador with work in Northern Ireland a few years ago. In our studios in New York right now, we are thrilled to bring you Gerardo Rodriguez with BlackRock, but more importantly, with immense public service to finance and treasury for the government of Mexico and uh, out of Stanford and economic systems and operation research as well. Gerardo, we were talking earlier about Mexico, but we really didn't get the NAFTA. Did President Trump cause damage with a relationship with Mexico this week to have NAFTA off and then NAFTA back on? that um, what uh, he did is introduced an additional element of uncertainty that had been uh, going away. Um, Mexico, again, is not considered a political or economic threat by any relevant political constituency in the U.S. It is a country that has been a strategic ally in liberal matters when it comes to trade, when the world, when, when the U.S. engages with the rest mm -hmm. of the world. So um, uh, the, the work that has been done on both uh, sides prior to the recent comments is one of preparing institutions, preparing Congress for an upcoming negotiation. Right. There is a clear interest to improve uh, NAFTA, and this, uh, in a way, it's just sending a message that you got to be careful because right. surprise may come in the horizon. Three, four years ago, Mexico was a poster child for N11 success. Is that success still there with the economic growth of Mexico? I think it is, uh, but uh, other things have happened at the same time. Mexico uh, sort of stood out because of its uh, reform impetus, the, not only the willingness, but the capacity to push through several reforms at the constitutional mm -hmm. and legal uh, level, opening up the the energy sector, telecoms, competition, labor, and uh, uh, other things. Now, uh, at the same time, what has happened is that uh, oil prices and oil production in Mexico declined significantly, creating macroeconomic uh, challenges, especially on the fiscal side, that have uh, been uh, starting to, to be addressed. But at the same time, also, um, challenges on corruption matters at the federal and state uh, government level have uh, actually created a political environment where the popularity of the president is at all-time lows. And in anticipation of next year's presidential election, clearly the left-wing uh, uh, candidate, uh, 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 the left-wing party candidate has been benefiting from all these uh, sort of uh, mm -hmm. uh, social dynamics in Mexico. Where is there, there are opportunities right now? Yes, in Mexico, but uh, in Latin America more generally. When you're, when you're looking at, at where to invest, are you looking at corporates? Are you looking at sovereigns? What, what's attractive to you? 
So clearly, uh, as you say, the, the Mexican peso with the weakness around these commodities is clearly one of uh, the most attractive investment opportunities that we see out there in the emerging uh, world. We like Colombia as uh, well. Colombia is an interesting a case where the macro rebalancing after major shocks, both on production and other agricultural uh, elements, uh, have forced a significant adjustment of the external and fiscal accounts in uh, uh, Colombia. The central bank is in the middle of an aggressive easing uh, cycle. So long-term rates in Colombia is uh, actually uh, something that we like. We like Brazil on the equity side as well. The uh, very aggressive easing cycle by the central bank, I mean, they're lowering 100 basis points per meeting, uh, perhaps going to 125 uh, next uh, meeting. It is an economy that has turned the corner. Uh, the country has also turned the corner politically. It's uh, starting to get ready for next year's presidential election. And although the economy is somewhat of a flatlining at uh, this point, the prospects of reform to uh, restart economic growth in Brazil is looking uh, good. It is clearly one of our top picks on the equity side, uh, Brazilian well, equity markets. Arado, thank you so much. Arado Rodriguez, uh, quickly this morning, too quick, with BlackRock as well on Mexico. Thank you so much. And of course, on emerging markets with BlackRock uh, worldwide. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC. There's something new from Bloomberg. It's called Lens. Starting right now, you can use the Bloomberg iOS app off your iPhone or iPad or our new Google Chrome extension to read any news story on any website, scan it, and then instantly see the news story's relevant market data from Bloomberg. In addition, see all the bios of the key people mentioned in the story. It's called Lens, and it is just that, a lens into the people and the data of any story you may be reading. Again, Lens brings you the power of Bloomberg's news and data. Download our iOS app or search for the Bloomberg extension at the Chrome store to try Lens out. Learn more at Bloomberg.com Lens. Joining me here in our Bloomberg 991 studios now is Zeke Emanuel, healthcare expert Zeke Emanuel, professor of healthcare management at the University of Pennsylvania. As we look at what's happening on Capitol Hill, there was some optimism in the Republican camp that there would be the votes needed to get their legislation through this week. It seems that last night uh, all of that changed. There will not be a vote here this week. Uh, the House leadership is saying, Zeke Emanuel, great to have you, you with us. Get us up to speed. You've been talking to, to lawmakers. What's what's the objective here? Is is policy driving this? Is politics driving this? What, what do Republicans hope to do? Where is their agreement between these two sides? <laughs> this is definitely not about policy. The uh, 2.0 Republican reform bill is, if anything, worse than 1.0. Uh, and so it's uh, going to have a hard time. I don't think there's as much attention on it, but um, moderate Republicans do not like it. It doesn't bode well for them in the election. 
The public doesn't like it because what the public is concerned about is the high cost of health care. They're concerned about high deductibles, high co-payments, high drug costs, and this bill does absolutely nothing uh, on that. And so I think this bill's chance of success are low. I was not at all surprised that, in fact, uh, they didn't they pulled a, a vote because they don't have the votes mm. and they're not going to have the votes. And I've predicted that they won't pass anything. And hopefully after we go through this uh, futile exercise a few more times, uh, we will actually get to serious negotiations about policy and about what to do about the uh, state of health care. There was a great piece uh, uh, by Bloomberg View columnist Peter Orzag uh, <laughs> looking at this and saying, if, if you want bipartisanship, if you want something to happen, focus here on containing costs and improving value. Is that the provenance of the legislature? Is that where that needs to happen or can it ha- happen elsewhere? Well, there are some things the administration can do from a regulatory basis and uh, that you know, th- those are, would be good. Uh, unfortunately, Secretary Price uh, put on hold some of those changes when he put on hold uh, introducing the bundled payments for cabbage bypass surgery and acute myocardial infarction. We need those bundled payments. We need different ways of paying, um, and uh, we should not put them on hold for reexamination. I think uh, over the long term, uh, costs are going to be the key thing that uh, Americans care about. Now, I would just uh, have your listeners remember Massachusetts. In 2006, mm. they began this sort of universal coverage approach. They've gotten pretty well. They're sort of 96, 97 uh, percent covered in Massachusetts. And then once you get coverage, you then automatically uh, more or less shift to costs and trying to get costs under control. And I think that's where we are in the United States. We did the coverage bill. It's not perfect, but it actually advanced things pretty well. We're about 10 percent uninsured in the country now. Um, and so naturally, people I've got coverage, but it's really hard and expensive to use, and let's get the system better, both in terms of cost and in terms of quality. And that's, I think, the natural progression of these debates. It strikes me that the chief challenge here, uh, as Republican lawmakers look at this, is there are components of the Affordable Care Act that are well-liked by a lot of people, uh, be that letting your kid stay on your plan until he's X age, be that uh, not having to worry about pre-existing conditions. That makes reform difficult having those things that uh, that everyone seems to like. Well, for Bloomberg people, uh, you guys know behavioral economics pretty well, and there's something called loss aversion. Once I have something, I don't like it being taken away, and that's what we're seeing with healthcare. Oh, I got have this health insurance. I don't like it taken away. I have the safety net under me that if, you know, God forbid my employer pulls the insurance or I become unemployed or I want to start my own company, I have the safety net. I can get coverage. People don't like that being taken away. But they also want it now to be affordable. And they've seen their drug prices go up. They've seen the deductibles go up. And they're very upset by that. So I think that's our next uh, our next phase. Tom Keene in New York sitting here with John Tucker. We're having a wonderful spring morning. Uh, it's beautiful. <laughs> we we miss David, though. Well, oh, David's John, in Washington. <laughs> David's in Washington. And don't let our esteemed guests know that the only reason we booked him was because maybe he can get us Cubs tickets. I mean, <laughs> you know, possibly. <laughs> we'll broker that. We'll broker that during the next. Greg Sink Emanuel with us here, Professor of Healthcare Management at the University of uh, Pennsylvania, joining us in our Bloomberg at 99.1 studios. Tom, I know you want to talk about insurance here in just yeah. a moment, but uh, Zeke, let me ask you about uh, lobbying might in this town during the Trump administration. Every article I read about what's been happening on Capitol Hill says special interest groups have been key in scuttling this or pushing it one way or another. How does healthcare lobbying look, look to you in the year 2017? Uh, It's pretty intense, uh, as usual, in getting the right people uh, to listen to you. Uh, The drug companies still have uh, a lot of might 
Uh, but, you know, one of the reasons I think, for example, this Republican proposal is not doing so well is the fact that the AMA, the American Hospital Association, AARP, and a whole slew of other people in the healthcare industry are against it. They want the exchanges shored up. And uh, this bill doesn't do that, and so they've come out strongly against it. And so when you've got all the healthcare yeah. industry against it, uh, and, uh, you know, it's a hard uphill fight. Zeke, help us here into the weekend in that I see map after map of regions of the nation with four insurers, three insurers, two insurers, one insurer, and the scary thought of no insurer under the Affordable Care Act. Do the, what do those insurers want? Do they want to be part of the Affordable Care Act, or is this just an excuse to run? Well, let me, let me make two points. First, if you look at Anthem recently reported that they're doing well in the exchanges, thank you very much. Uh, despite all the chatter out there, most of the insurance companies who are participating are doing uh, okay. Uh, they raised their rates and they got uh, that matched their risk pool, and so they're doing okay. The big problem is insurers hate uncertainty, and what we have now is a huge amount of uncertainty. Yeah. Three things would actually make them much uh, happier and therefore would bring rates down uh, and certainly rate increases down. First, say you're going to enforce the individual mandate so that you get more young people coming in, and don't say you're not going to enforce it and not impose penalties <coughs> and undermine uh, the th yeah. situation. Second, uh, we need risk corridors and uh, reinsurance payments. Uh, those were scuttled by our good friend, uh, Senator Rubio. Uh, those are very important in case a insurance company gets a disproportionate right. number of sick people. That, again, brings rates down sometimes, I've heard as much as 5 to 10 percent. Uh, and then the third element is these cost-sharing subsidies. So for families in America earning up to 250% of poverty who are on the exchanges, that means they're earning $60,000 roughly or less, um, right. they get help paying the deductibles and the co-pays. Um, and if they don't uh, uh, get government support for that, the insurance companies are on the hook. And they're like, oh, right. why should I participate? And the Republicans <clears throat> say, oh, we'll decide those on a month-to-month basis. That, well, that is no good for an literally of no help for an insurance company. And again, that's worth another 10% on the premiums. So you want to get premiums down, attract insurance companies in because the market is stable. You have to do those three right, okay. things. And, you know, I, I, I and, and they're not, by the way, Tom, they're not complicated. Everyone knows they're there. Um, and if you, you know, if the uh, Republicans upset the market by not paying the cost-sharing subsidies, not enforcing right. the mandate, everyone know who, knows who's at fault now. When you control all branches of government, you can't point the finger yeah. and say, oh, it's a Democrat's problem. No, you have the power to solve this problem. You have to solve it. My theme for the first 100 days has been the phrase the minority-majority party and that it's a Republican party struggling with leadership and governance and what, what is their majority position going to be. What do the moderate Republicans want out of the Zeke Emanuel world? What's their best outcome? Oh, I think their best outcome is let's fix the Affordable Care Act uh, and get what's working working and let's get some meaningful cost control enacted that will actually over the long haul, the next four or five years, get uh, costs down to growing so healthcare costs doesn't don't grow any faster than the overall economy. Those two things uh, eminently possible. There is a deal here. There is a bipartisan approach to this. Cost control is not one or the other. What The problem with the um, 
Republican bill, and I've said this over and over, and I've said it to the president and to uh, Speaker Ryan, is this is a cost shift bill. It's not a cost control bill. It takes costs from the government, shifts them to individuals. That is not a solution to keep for the long term. We do have, and you know, I have produced paper on this for various people, we do have a number of ways that we can actually reduce uh, costs in the system. Uh, we could start with drugs since there's a big bipartisan group uh, for that. The American public wants to do that. But we have to extend it to hospitals and doctors and everyone in the system. Uh, but there is a very, very big middle. What we can't be uh, is wagged by either the far-right Freedom Caucus, which seems to control the day and doesn't want to do anything uh, to uh, have the government intervene, or far-left people mm -hmm. who are only interested in single-payer. There's a vast middle, and that's where we have to focus. And if we did focus on that, uh, we would have a bipartisan uh, group that would support a lot of reforms. Again, shoring up the exchanges, making sure everyone can get coverage, and then moving on to good cost control. And right. I think you can do it all together. As you go to the White House and to Capitol Hill and talk to policymakers here in Washington and elsewhere, is there anyone who says the Affordable Care Act as it stands is fine? In other words, is there agreement that there needs to be some reform to the legislation? Well, even Hillary Clinton, when she ran for the presidency, said, you know, we, we need to make fixes. Look, it's been seven years and one month, roughly, since the Affordable Care Act has been passed. You know, Problems are going to develop, unanticipated uh, problems, as well as problems that the, the bill was never perfect in the first place. So we know it needs to, uh, reforms. Does it need drastic surgery? Uh, no. And, uh, you know, I think that's where the big mistake is. And the American public, once you say, we're taking it away, whoa, 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 whoa. That, no, we don't want it to go away. We do want it to be fixed. Um, and so I think that's where the public is. And that's one of the reasons it's so hard mm. for uh, the Republican Party to just repeal it. I mean, it's a great piece of rhetoric to get elected, but it's not a great way to govern. And I think, unfortunately, these things have come together so that all we have now is rhetoric uh, on the political campaign rather than substance. Let's roll up our sleeves and actually do something substantive here that most people will be happy with. Let me just situate this in, in all that's going on, the conversation about, yes, government funding, but also tax reform and financial market uh, regulation reform. There's a lot happening. Can you attribute the fact that we're maybe not having the kind of serious conversation you'd like to the fact that there are so many distractions? We've talked to people who have said, look, in any given year, if you were to just pursue tax reform alone, that would be an ambitious undertaking uh, for this Congress. Are there simply too many distractions, or is it that coupled with the politics? Uh, I think it's all of it. Yeah. I, don't, I, don't, I wouldn't call them distractions. Look, you have an agenda that yes. you want to get passed. I actually think the irony is if you could get bipartisan agreement on health care, it would actually give you more political capital to attack uh, things like uh, tax reform, uh, infrastructure, build. Those are the three big issues. Let's do them serially and go for the middle. And that has not been what's happening. Uh, they have tried to go for an extreme one-party uh, a solution, and that won't work because the, the Republican parties have shown we're not unified uh, on the Republican right, uh, and so we need to go to the middle where it's going to be both some, you know, a fair number of Democrats and a fair number of Republicans, and that's I think where we're directed. But if you did that, mm. then people would say, hey, yeah, I can work with these people. We can find some moderate solutions. I'm not going to get everything. We'll go back to actual politics where politics is the art of the compromise, the art of the deal, where not everyone walks away with everything they wanted, but things actually improve. And that, I think, is what's really uh, missing here. Um, we've got, you know, uh, 
controlled by the most extreme elements, mm. and we've ceded control. If the Republicans say we're only going to pass this bill with Republican votes, then you have the most extreme people dictating what's uh, at stake. And that is no formula for success. That is for sure not going to work. You know, remember, 23 uh, uh, House Republicans uh, are in districts that uh, Mrs. Clinton won. Yep. Okay? They're not inclined to vote the way the Freedom Caucus wants to go. Uh, so you just can't pass anything under those circumstances. You know, I think the real important thing is, is for us to look, yeah. you know, two or three years down the line and say, all right, what's the big issue? There's a lot of uh, cost control. That's the big issue. All right, Sika Manuel joining us here in our 991 studios with the University of Pennsylvania. This is Bloomberg Surveillance, David Gura and Tom Keene. David Gura in Washington, D.C. today. Tom Keene uh, in New York. Looking forward to this interview we're about to have here with Douglas Holtzik and the president yes. of the American Action Forum, former director of the Congressional Budget Office. We spent a lot of time, Doug, yesterday talking about your opinion piece in the Washington Post. Trump's tax plan is built on a fairy tale. We also were marveling at uh, what that tax plan looked like just physically. Uh, this this one-page document, 200 words, uh, a variety of typefaces. Uh, here we are, 99 days in. Did you expect that we were going to get more from the White House than we did? Uh, look, I think we have to acknowledge the accomplishment. Not only is the return now on a postcard, the tax code is one page. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's never been done before. Let, let's, let's dig into the substance a little bit here. A lot of, of what was on that piece of paper mirrored what the president had been talking about on the, the campaign trail when he was a, a candidate. Uh, what, what did you see there that you like, and uh, what did you see that you didn't? Uh, what I saw that I liked was a focus on some things that would be genuinely pro-growth, uh, lower tax rates on business, uh, a move to a territorial tax system for our corporations. That's a, a, a switch from the campaign, uh, I think a significant switch. Um, and, you know, we saw some um, movement down in the individual rates. So in terms of the, the sort of basic recipe of, of tax reform, lower rates, uh, broader base, you see the lower rates. Um, what's missing, and the thing that troubles me the most, is the absence of any real discussion of the base broadening and the casual assertion by the Secretary of Treasury that we can just grow enough that we'll, it'll pay for itself. And that's, that's simply not true, and I, that's the part I don't like. About that casual assertion, I mean, we hear it time and time again, the, 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 the prospects of getting to 3% growth. We hear the Treasury Secretary saying it. We hear the President saying it as well. And, and there's something elliptical about this, that you would be in favor of tax reform because that's going to boost growth, and boosting growth is going to pay for tax reform. It goes around and around and around. Uh, how problematic is that? It's absolutely true that if you have a solid piece of pro-growth tax reform that is revenue neutral and as a result could be passed in a permanent fashion, you could have a significant impact on the growth rate. I don't think you can get a percentage point, yeah. and I certainly don't think it pays for itself. So if, for example, you fleshed out the House uh, blueprint, passed that as a piece of legislation in a revenue neutral fashion, the Joint Committee on Taxation is going to give it something that looks like maybe three hundred to five hundred to six hundred billion dollars in right. in feedback, but but it, there's a limit to what you can get, and you should just acknowledge okay. that. If we assume that the president of the United States, Doug, has not read intertemporal analysis of state and local government spending not theory recently. and tests, so, so this is the willing suspension of disbelief part of the program. Nineteen ninety four. This by Douglas Holtzik and S. Tilly in the wonderful Harvey Rosen. If they haven't gone back and read your oeuvre, that's a French word there, Doug. Help me with the who instructs the president and the secretary of the treasury on how this gets done if they're not listening in their fairy tale 
to people like you, who will they listen to to get legitimate reform? So I think there was some good news that came out of this, and, and, and I will answer the question. The good news was the president signaled by, by having this uh, rollout and by putting out the, the, the proposal, however thin the, that rough outline was, that the status quo is unacceptable. And that really is true. The status quo is okay, harming fine. us. Okay, fine. We all know that. Okay, so step number two, if you look at that, uh, that proposal, it does not rule out anything that has been discussed on Capitol Hill. There's nothing in the House blueprint that got ruled out. There's nothing in the Senate integration approaches that, that got ruled out. And that's where they're going to end up going for the expertise. Now, they have it in-house if they can get staffed up, if they could have an assistant secretary for tax policy. That would they, help. You know, sort of, if they did those sort of you know, appointments and got them done, okay. the Treasury has a very deep bench. It's there. It just isn't being put into action at the moment. You represented Senator McCain in his effort for higher office. Maybe he wouldn't have played as much golf as a president. <laughs> Doug, what will the Senate no, response? No, he, he prefers to tour war zones for oh, that's recreation. <laughs> what will be the the response of good senators to a deal making president on tax reform? I can't get there. Look, the White House has to has to provide a lot of leadership to get tax reform done. I mean, we we learned that in the thirty one years since we last got it done. It took a Ronald Reagan running for re-election on the promise of tax reform. He won 49 states, which is pretty good. He then wrote the tax reform, sent it to Capitol Hill, and it still was extraordinarily hard to get it done. So in this environment, you're going to need a President Trump saying to the, the people who sent him to Washington to make the economy better, this is what I want, this is what's going to ha- help the average American, and they're going to have to be all in. Now, what they're all in on is an important thing, and they're going to have to negotiate that with the House, the Senate, and the White House. That's the process that that needs to get deeper and richer over the course of the next couple of months, or or it simply isn't going to happen. Douglas Holtzikin with us here in our Bloomberg 991 studios in Washington, D.C. We're going to come back and talk more perhaps about the prospects of a government government shutdown, talk about funding, talk about uh, what was reported to be a return to regular order. I've yet to see the... Contrast of that coming to finer focus, but uh, we'll talk about budget policy as well with Doug Holtzikin here, former director of the Congressional uh, Budget Office on Bloomberg Surveillance uh, from Bloomberg Radio. Douglas Holtzikin here with us uh, in the Bloomberg 991 series. You want to react to the to the numbers here? That just generally speaking, react to sort of the growth that we're seeing uh, in the U.S. right now. Uh, that's about what I expected. It was um, I thought it would come in at 0. 0.8. So you know that's that's exactly the yeah. same number. It has the characteristics that I worried about, which is the soft PCE number. We saw the household sector weaken over the course of the second half of 2016. Uh, we've seen sort of mixed data uh, coming out of the monthly uh, data. And so I'd say the jury's still out on uh, genuine acceleration. Uh, and I, I, I'm with the president in the sense that I think there needs to be uh, a turning of the dial on the policy front mm-hmm. and some genuinely um, supportive pro-growth policies. Uh, the biggest of those would be the tax reform we talked about, if that was done and done well. Uh, but but I, I will say, I think one of the things that the administration and the Congress have done that hasn't really been appreciated is, is just the complete freeze on, on regulatory activity. And the, the difference between what was going on and now is really quite dramatic. Yeah, we, we were joking about watching paint dry. I think there are a lot of people in this town who would love to watch paint dry, would love to see a return <laughs> to, to regular order. Here we are looking at the prospect for another short-term Spending bill. We'll get something that'll keep the government open for a week while Congress continues to hammer out what they're what they're hammering out. How used to that is Washington at this point? Way, how used to continuing resolutions is, is Washington? Way too used to, to that. I mean, how often in the past 
decade have they passed 12 pro- appropriations bills in the House, the Senate, and signed them the way they're supposed to? It doesn't happen. I think it's happened once, maybe twice. And so this stopgap way of mm-hmm. doing business has become the norm. It was supposed to be the exception. Yeah. And I don't, I don't think it benefits anyone. Doug, I want to rip up the script here. The uproar today, and uh, Pedro over at, Pedro DeCosta over at Business Insider had a great article on this. I think it was in Foreign Policy. I can't remember. Yesterday, on speaking fees, Senator Warren of Massachusetts is, I was troubled by that, that being a large speaking fee by the former president of the United States. I don't accept speaking fees, folks. That's part of my agreement with Bloomberg. But, Doug, you do. is an yeah. esteemed public official. You've got many agencies, including LAI. Isn't somebody able to serve public service at the low salary like you did at CBO? You made like $48,300 a year or whatever at CBO. And then when you get out, you got to make the bacon to catch up, don't you? Uh, in, in my case, I had two kids in college, and it was the way to pay the bills, and I was happy to do it. Um, I, I, I don't have a, any deep objection to this. Uh, it's Why are we having this uproar now that it's immoral to make a big fat fee to provide immense wisdom to people after X number of years of government service? Um, I, I don't understand this. There's a... A close corollary, which is accepting the large fee, speaking, and then somehow being tasked to change policy. But, but that's that's not what goes on. I think that's the concern that somehow by accepting the fee, you've turned, in this case, the former president of the United States into yeah. the agent of of some some group. That's that's a yeah. that's a fantasy. That's not and, what happens. And David, to help you out here, Google with room room board and fees combined. Denison University, $60,710. That's where Holtzik can darken the door. See what you have to look forward to. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, David, I I, I don't mean to get up on my soapbox, but once again this Friday, David Gurrow, we have this uproar over speaking fees. There you go. We do. Uh, We certainly do. Uh, On the news that President Obama, I think, is going to travel to Europe to give a speech for for $400,000. It's a a big – I mean, Holtzik not at that level. Well (laughs) – Yes, I would like. To, uh, I'm sure the, he would accept it if that for were, those that were for those listening who are concerned about giving the president four hundred thousand dollars, give it to me. <laughs> he, will, he will gladly. Do it. I just ask you about congressional leadership. Let me let me pivot away from that just a little bit. We, we look to President Obama here for for wisdom on the future of, of of the Democratic Party. Where else are you seeing leadership in the Democratic Party and the Republican? Party. You mentioned John McCain touring uh, war zones on, on, on his holiday, uh, getting out there, doing all that. Who, who are the, the iconic figures in these two parties right now, aside from, from the president? Uh, I, I think the, the party's in flux. I think we saw that in the 2016 election. Uh, the, the sort of traditional standard bearers in the presidential primary didn't do very well. Uh, we saw Donald Trump win the nomination in the end. Uh, that, that bleeds back into the House and the Senate, where there's a clear leadership at the moment. But it's not obvious who's the next in line. So that sort of pecking, you know, Republicans have traditionally always liked to know who the next person was. And and it's not been that way for quite some time now. Douglas Holtzikin with us here in our Bloomberg 991 studios, the Thank president you. of the American Action Forum, former director of the Congressional Budget Office, former chief economist yeah. to the President George W. This, Council of Economic Advisors. David, this interview was like a fairy tale. <laughs> Do do read his do read his piece uh, in the Washington Post again. Trump's tax plan is built on a fairy tale. I'll put that out on Twitter. I know you will as well, uh, Tom. But uh, a, a useful read here as the conversation about tax reform in Washington continues.
Secretary of State Rex Tillerson in New York today, meeting with members of the U.N. Security Council. He will chair a special meeting on North Korea here at 10 o'clock at Wall Street time. For some perspective on this, let's go to Victor Chaut. He's the Korea Chair at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, the Song Chair in the Department of Government at the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University, and former Director for Asian Affairs at the National Security Council. I looked at the Reuters interview that's making a lot of headlines this morning, Professor Chaw. Uh, the president saying, quote, there's a chance that we could end up having a major, major conflict with North Korea, and perhaps worryingly, more worryingly, to people who read that interview, the word absolutely uh, following it. What did you make of what the president had to say, and what do you expect to hear from the Secretary of State today uh, when the U.N. Security Council meets? Um, well, I think there are a lot. There, there are a number of conflicting signals coming out of the administration right now. On the one hand, as you mentioned, President Trump made those comments about conflict. On the other hand, yesterday, uh, Secretary Tillerson said the United States was also ready for diplomacy with North Korea. So, um, I think I think what they are doing, they're putting all their options on the table right now. The focus is on trying to economically pressure North Korea through the China relationship. Um, but the purpose of the pressure is to try to get them back to the negotiating table for some sort of deal. Uh, I think that the message at the UN is going to be, one, um, this is the number one national security issue for the United States today. I've heard that all week in Washington, D.C., mm-hmm. on Capitol Hill and um, around town. And two, that um, the U.N. has to be ready uh, to move quickly with sanctions and a new U.N. Security Council resolution if North Korea does a sixth nuclear test. Where do you see the, the pressure being applied? I look at the, the rhetoric, uh, and in particular the, the rhetoric on Twitter, as one's want to do here under this, uh, uh, this current administration. The president seemingly uh, expressing a lot of confidence in his, his friendly relationship with the, with the Chinese president, moving away from labeling the country a currency manipulator. What kind of pressure can the U.S. apply on China at this point when it comes to North Korea? So I think there are two types of pressure. One is um, uh, our movement of military assets to the region, as we've seen with the carrier strike group that Carl Vinson that eventually made it um, to the waters off the Korean (laughs) eventually that eventually made it there uh, off the Korean Peninsula and that I think is something the Chinese don't like Um, and then the other is really Trump leveraging the overall US-China relationship the Chinese want they don't want instability this year this is the year of their big party Congress so Xi Jinping doesn't want a crisis on his border Um, and China does have a lot of economic influence on North Korea they don't have any political influence but you know, yeah. 80, 85% of North Korea's trade is with China. You are truly one of our nation's experts on Korea. I would suggest I need education, and maybe the president of the United States needs education. Outside of the capital, what is North Korea like? If I take the road north-northeast from the capital, and I'm distant from the Yellow River, there's Chenggang or Jancheon Chenggang. I can't pronounce it. I guess it's a mining district. How medieval, how backward is the rest of North Korea? Um, it is pretty backward. I mean, once you get out of the capital city, the Potemkin village of, of, the, of Pyongyang, um, it, it deteriorates rapidly. Very little electric, electricity. I once uh, took a drive uh, when I was in government doing this, and uh, I drove for about 60 miles and I didn't, and through farmland, and I did not see a mechanized vehicle anywhere. Uh, the only thing I saw was a farmer with a with an ox and a plow um and uh, you pass buildings that have no windows in them but you know people live in them because there's laundry hanging in the windows um it is it is quite quite bad and when you talk about the mining areas this is yeah. this is an area where they have a lot of a lot of their uh uh, uh their uh, human rights violations they have 
they who they deem political criminals uh, working right. in the mines, you know, digging uh, digging out with their bare hands with no safety precautions whatsoever. Do, do we have intelligence on this? I think of the failure of U.S. intelligence in 19, I believe it was 89, with the collapse of the Soviet Union. Would you suggest that the president has available a level of intelligence where informed decisions can be made? Um, well, North Korea is famously known as the hardest intelligence target in the world, um, and, and I think that is true. I think our intelligence community does the best they can with the equipment and the capabilities they have. But of course, we don't. We have, are not able to penetrate North Korea like we can other countries, Iran or other places. It's just not. It's just not the same. So, it is. This is the biggest security challenge, and it is also at the same time the hardest intelligence target. That's not a good combination. Professor Cha, a few Americans have been in the room negotiating with uh, with the North Koreans. You've been there as part of that six party talk delegation team a, a while back. What are they like in negotiations? What does what North Korean diplomacy look like? And, and, and judging based on that, how, how, how high is the likelihood here we could have a diplomatic solution? Um, so, I, you know, they're, they're not sort of banging the table and screaming. I mean, they are professional diplomats. Uh, they have a brief. They have instructions. Um, uh, they, you know, they're aiming to get an agreement as well as everybody else at the table. Um, I would say one of the big differences is that they have absolutely no flexibility. Um, they, it's harder for them to call back to capitals to get approval to to try out a new idea. Um, so in that sense, um, their inflexibility is really a function of the way their whole system is organized. And uh, for that reason, they cannot, they're not very nimble negotiators. Um, they're sort of, they have one brief. That's all they can say, and then everybody else has to figure out how to try to make it work uh, because they really can't move. In, in the last uh, 30 seconds or so we have with you, are we, are we seeing a market change here when it comes to U.S. policy toward North Korea? We, you mentioned the sort of attention that the issue is, uh, is getting. Is the policy itself changing? I, I think the context of the policy is changing, and that is largely because North Korea is driving to, for an ICBM threat, an intercontinental ballistic missile threat that can range the United States. That's something no previous U.S. president has had to deal with. That makes it a homeland security threat. And so for that reason, I think that means the United States is willing to take more risk, whether that's in terms of military policy or in terms of diplomacy. President Trump is going to have to accept more risk as he maps out a policy and strategy for North Korea. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC.